All right, I'm going to be reading uh, John chapter 2, verses 16 through 22. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So then... The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. I actually don't know how to turn this off. (laughs) Am I on? Am I going? Am I going? Test, test. Uh-oh. This happened again. Am I going out? Yeah. Am I? Okay, sorry. Um, there. Did I just need to talk louder? Is that all it was? <laughs> Stop whispering. Um, uh, this is going to be a hard one. Um, we're going to be talking about the zeal of God. Um, it's not a word we use often. Uh, I think we feel it, just not in relation to God. And um, I feel ill-equipped <laughs> to preach this sermon. So let's, uh, let's start by praying. God, would you uh, reveal to us your truth this morning? We want to adore you. We want to see you for who you are as our holy God. And uh, sadly, it seems that We come to this place too infrequently when we sing these words. um, God, would you just help us to see you more clearly this morning? Shape our hearts after you. Make us more like you. And may we glorify you with our lives. God, we we love you. And we thank you for giving us this time. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest and didn't get to say hi, um, you know, please... Find me afterwards. Hopefully, you got to meet Gene or Brian, one of the other other pastors on the way in. Um, And hopefully, you grabbed a gift bag. So we've got one. So it tells you, gives you contact information, tells you a little bit about us and who we are and what we believe. And um, uh, so we're going to be going through John 
I'm just wrecked. So, um, you know, it's it's so incredibly beautiful when when God lines up, you know, multiple things, you know, in our lives, and it, it kind of this confluence of events, and it's like, man, He is so good. Um, <clears throat> Um, so anyway, so Warner, thanks for picking those songs. <laughs> but, um, but honestly, we had the uh, real Christianity discussion here last night. And I had a real hard time, like, <laughs> not preaching my sermon <laughs> and letting the discussion happen. Because we were talking about politics, frankly, and not, not issues, but how, how ought we as, as Christians and followers of Christ to, like, how do we feed into the, the divisive culture that exists right now? How do we feed into a culture that is extremely zealous for the things of this world? And how do we, how do we protect our zeal for God? How do we keep that, those emotions and the and that life separate from all the other things that we find ourselves consumed with frankly and this is not this is hard because i you know you guys know me like this is not uh, i struggle with all these things everything i'm going to say up here is um, god preaches it to me before i'm preaching it to you guys so I'm blown like a baby on my couch at 6 a.m., you know? <laughs> um, all right. So we read this week. We're going back and forth, right? So if you haven't been here, we're going back and forth in, in John. So, uh, you know, we're, we're preaching this morning on uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. Hopefully this last week you went through with your small group or in your family or in your own personal devotions, chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. I think I'm... We're doing 13. Anyway, um, what was the story? The story was the, the miracle of the first sign, John says, of Jesus changing water into wine. And uh, for those that were in the group that I was in, I can't say my group, it's Dave's group. But <laughs> so, like, in that group, like, I'm facilitating the discussion. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, why? One of the questions, right? If you go to our website, right? Like, one of the questions was, why that miracle? Why was that the first miracle? It seems so subtle, so quiet, kind of boring, very, very, like not, I mean, very practical, right? It's just this, it's almost, I, and I don't think this is blasphemous, but like it's almost vulgar, right? It's just like so ordinary. It's like, I mean, it's, I mean, I can't turn water into wine. You guys can't turn water into wine. So it's, so it's miraculous in that sense, but it's like, what, just for the wedding party to have more wine? <laughs> like, just seems so weird. And they're already drunk. <laughs> so, but what we talked about in our group was like, it was a private miracle. Nobody knew. <laughs> it's going to be a long sermon if I keep going at this pace. Um, nobody knew 
it happened other than the servants and his disciples. The master of the party was like, sweet, awesome, thanks for the wine. Everybody was like, oh, it was great, it was good wine. And that's it. Nobody else knew. It's this, it's this super intimate miracle. It's almost like, like Jesus is like, let me just, let me show you who I am to his disciples, to the people who, who knew him. And then, and then these servants who just got this amazing blessing, right? Who just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Or God knew them and forwarded, right? I mean, we, yeah, anyway, right? So, and so it's this very beautiful piece where it shows us the love of God for them, for us as individuals, right? He breaks this down. He makes this, this doesn't, Jesus doesn't come out and just start pounding his chest and start doing amazing, miraculous things for all to see. I mean, this is an enigma for us, right? Because we all want God, like, God, would you just make yourself known? Like, would you just, like, just tear open the skies and then I'll believe. It'll be really easy. But he doesn't do it that way. It doesn't operate that way. I mean, he did do very incredible things, as we'll see as we walk through John. And, and what's John cataloging? He's cataloging the, the ones that will cause us to believe and to trust in God for our salvation. That's why he includes us. And so he starts off with this very subtle one. And then he shifts. And John takes us and transports us to the temple in Jerusalem on Passover where there's bleeding sheep and cows and money changers and bargaining and it's loud and there's thousands of people and you could probably, you're like rubbing shoulders with everybody and people are sweaty and they probably smell and there's got to be feces on the ground. This is where he goes. So he starts in this beautiful, intimate little wedding with just the disciples. And he's like, okay, now Jesus is here. And that's where we're going to be picking up this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up. We'll be in John chapter 2, verse 13. The verses will be on the screen as well. And now i got to speed up. <laughs> he says, uh, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So here's what was happening. So for the Passover, this was a pilgrimage. So all the Jews from all over the place would, would come back to Jerusalem so that they could do their annual sacrifices, right? So they'd go to the temple, um, and they could bring their sacrifices. They could bring their pigeons and their sheep and their oxen. They could bring that stuff with them, but they, they had to be of a certain quality. They had to be, right, like kind of first fruits, the best, right? And, and so they would bring them, and, and at times, like, they would, not be, they would not meet the threshold that the priest would say, you know, that's a good enough sacrifice. But they had other ones for them to buy there, right? So they're like, okay, that one isn't going to work. You can take that one home with you, but here, you buy this one instead, and this will, this will meet the requirements of the law of Moses. And so, so they would do that. Now, they'd be from other countries, right? So they had to change out their money, and they also had to pay the temple tax, which was basically the tithe for them to keep Jerusalem and, and Israel rolling and stuff, right? So that's what's going on. So there's nothing, there's nothing 
particularly sinful in this. People had good motives, right? Like, this is just, this was what it was. Um, In fact, where this is happening is the outer courts. This is the only place the Gentiles could go to worship God. There are inner courts. There's actually one more court inside where the women could go, the Jewish women. And then there was one more court inside of that where the Jewish men could go. And then there was one more court inside of that, which was the Holy of Holies. Okay, so that's kind of the layers. And so this is where the Gentiles could go. So for the vast majority of us who are Gentile, um, that's where we would have been. It's the closest we could have gotten. Could you imagine if you came in here this morning and you had to muddle your way through oxen and sheep and bargaining all going on while this is happening and while you're trying to worship and you're trying to sing holy, holy, holy. How do you think that would go for you? Can that be a little challenging? So this is the setting. Now, there is a lot of commentary, a lot of interpretation that, that there was some nefarious things going on between the priests and, and maybe trying to garner more money, trying to extort, being disingenuous. I don't know, frankly. I don't, I don't, Scripture doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say that people were uh, doing anything necessarily bad here. In Matthew's account of this, in a, at a different time, Jesus accuses them of being robbers. So perhaps you could make some interpretation to that. But look at what he says in verse 15, or in, and, and does. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus' concern, I mean, presumably some of those sheep and oxen were somebody's sacrifice, right? Maybe they just bought it. And now here goes Jesus kicking them all out of the temple. And they're like, but I, I was planning on sacrificing that. What's Jesus' concern here? He's like, you have turned my house of worship into a house of trade. His concern isn't for the integrity of the temple, right? He doesn't doesn't care about the, the stacked rocks that make up the building. He cares that people aren't able to worship God, that it's become practical, that it's become part of just some systemic, normal operating procedures of what the temple looks like now. And it's not worship. It's, it's business. It's, it's ordinary. It's not extraordinary. And Jesus goes, that's not what this was for. In fact, the temple was God's dwelling place. This is where the God of all creation chose to dwell. He gave instructions for this thing, and he's like, this is where I'm going to be. This was a holy place. And what did they do with it? They took their, their practical, and I would, because we are very easy, 
we're very good at finding loopholes, right? They take their very practical things. Well, we're just trying to help people give the sacrifices that are commanded in Scripture. Yeah. Well, we're just, we're just changing out the money for them. Why is that a bad thing, God? Because where's the worship? You see, you see how Jesus delineates this contrast here. So, so we should read this and we should go, have I made it too ordinary? Have we made it too ordinary? Because it seems as though this is Jesus' biggest concern. That these Gentiles can't come in and worship the God that they're supposed to be worshiping, and they're getting distracted and diluted and led astray and confused about who God is and what he wants of them. It says in verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, John does this throughout the gospel, and we'll see this, right? He, he, this, is, this is a future thing that he brings back into the interpretation of the present, right? Does that make sense? So, so right then, the disciples aren't walking around going, check out the zeal. This is amazing, right? This is something later they figure out. And John brings it back in here. His disciples remembered that it was written, right, that this... Uh, zeal for your house, because we'll kind of get, I, I kind of led that a little bit. It'll, it'll be more clear here as we move on, um, that they didn't conclude that at that time. But he's quoting David in Psalm 69, and we'll uh, turn over there here in a bit. But So here's this man, a carpenter. Nobody knew. He was ordinary in every way. And he comes in, he's from Nazareth, a looked down upon city, and he walks in to this bustle, and he forms a whip. Who is this guy? Who, who does this? Right? Like, like, he kicks everybody out. Like, first... Fairly miraculous. I mean, it's not, it's not written as like a miracle, but to kick everybody out of the Gentile courts and all the animals and not be arrested or put down, right? Like, I mean, frankly, if somebody came in here to do this, I, 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 think, I think there's a few of us that would take them down. I think. I've seen some of the youth climb over these chairs pretty quick. I'm sure like we could probably get there. Heads up for the black ones. You kind of lean back a lot, right? That one might not, you could launch off of it maybe. So how does Jesus do this? How, how does he actually go about making this happen? We, sometimes we read through this stuff and we don't think about the practicality of it. Like that would be interesting. And it's not like Jesus was this like massive dude that like, Everybody was afraid of. We, we, we read that that's not the case. And so what, what begs the question here? Look what it says in John 18, or John chapter 2, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? 
So, they, so they're like, dude, who are you? And what are you doing? Remember, what's John's objective in this? What did we read in chapter 20? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, your rescuer. That's John's purpose in this. And so, so they ask the question right here. Chapter 2, verse 18. By what authority are you doing these things? Who told you you could do this? It's a good question. It's a really good question. Not only is it who, who told you you're allowed to do this, but how did you get away with this? Jesus answers him in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. I'll just pause here for a second. I think this is, um, I think this is super cool. So in verse 18, he says, they, they ask him, what sign do you show us for doing these? He's basically saying like, like, show us a sign. Show us something that says you have the authority to do this. So uh, just pause there for a second, Tim, sorry. So, so they like, they don't go, you're a madman, get out of here. They don't. They give him the floor, right? They go, okay, come here. Why are you doing this? What authority do you have to do this? So, there, so there's an inquisition here. There's a little bit of like inquiry going, like maybe there's some legitimate, there's something going on, but, but we need a sign. We need you to show us something that proves that this is okay for you to do. And then, and then I don't know, we'll, we'll cross the bridge, the, the next bridge, right? But show us this. And he goes, yeah, I have a sign for you. I'll give you a sign. And this is what he says in verse 19. I think it's super cool. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. There, you start. Destroy it. <laughs> and they go, well, I mean, we're not going to destroy the temple. But Jesus offers them, I've never read this this way. Jesus offers them a sign. I will be happy to show you. Just destroy the temple. And they go, oh, well, come on. That's ridiculous. Don't go down hyperbole on me here. We're not going to do something like that. Show me something a little more ordinary. Turn water into wine. I don't know, right? Verse 20, the, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And so they, they scoff him. They're like, and in fact, scholars know like, like only that certain parts of it were even completed at 46 years. The temple wasn't fully finished until 68 AD. You know what happened two years later? Got destroyed. <laughs> Just super cool, right? We won't spend a ton of time on that. But, I mean, it's not cool, but it, you, you see what I mean. So Jesus, at the same time, is pointing to his authority, but he's also showing us a little bit of foreshadowing, right? And this is where John, again, will, will give us a little bit of uh, future conclusions pulled back into this in verse 21. It says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, so it's not until later that the disciples are like, oh, not that temple. Totally makes sense now. So Jesus is, so they ask him, what's your authority for doing this? And he says, I'll show you my authority, I will conquer death.
Look at what it says in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So there was more signs being done. We just, John doesn't record them. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he had no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. John isn't like, John's, John's pulling these theological conclusions back into this, right? He goes, he goes, this is what Jesus did, right? Jesus' purpose here is to go, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ? He says, look at what he did. He did this. And oh, by the way, people believed in him, but Jesus knew everybody's hearts. He knew the people's hearts that were in those temple courts, those hearts that were repentant, that just wanted to worship God. And those who had ulterior motives, those who were trying to make an extra buck, he knew all of that. And he levies a judgment on them. And he says, listen, this is not supposed to be a house of trade. This is my father's house. It's a place to worship. And everybody knew that that was a true statement, that it was a place of worship. But it took Jesus and his authority to come in and clear the temple to declare what was right and what was wrong. That was his authority. He goes, I will prove to you my authority. You will not be able to kill me. You will kill me. I will come back. That's how Jesus proves his authority here. And so John points to this. He uses this story to foreshadow what we're going to continue to see as we walk through the rest of John. Over and over again, Jesus did this. And this is what, how people reacted. And this is what it meant. And then Jesus did this. And this is how people reacted. And this is what it meant. And so this is what we see here. We see this incredible zeal of Jesus that can only be reflected by the Son of God. Because he knew what was in man. He knew their hearts. He knows our hearts. You can't say that about anybody. I think I know what you think. I think I know what you feel. Right? You probably have some good friends. And you go, I'm pretty sure we're in sync. I know what you feel. But Jesus knew where their hearts were. That's what gives him the authority. Because he's the son of God. So go back to that verse 17. It says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Let's talk about this zeal for a little bit. Because zeal is, is not a word we use often, but it reflects who God is probably more than any other word. It, re it reveals what God is about. Zeal is a combination of passion and jealousy. Not jealousy in the sense of envy, okay? Not jealousy in the sense of selfishness, but jealousy in the sense of wanting somebody's faithfulness. 
if you're married in here and you have kids, you want them to be faithful to you. you. You want that. And there's some selfishness in that, isn't there? Us as humans. But for God, it's totally different. He knows without a doubt that that is the best place for us in his presence. God alone brings us peace and joy and contentment that the world cannot give us. And so when God is jealous for us, he's like, why are you running away from this? Come home, come to me, come be with me. This is the best place for you. I'm jealous for your affection because I want you to be where I am. I want you to know me. I want you to trust in me because I will give you peace. That's what our God is zealous about. His zeal is for us. He passionately wants to rescue us. And in fact, we see this throughout all of Scripture. Throughout the entire Bible, it's about God's zeal for us over and over and over again. And so what can we hope for? That we would have the same affections God does, right? That his passion for us would would be the same passion we have for the things of God. That our affections would be the same as his affections. That's what sanctification is. That's what being a follower of Christ looks like. That that God is making us more and more into the image of his son so that we, we love the things that he loves and we hate the things that he hates. That's what God wants for us. Because when we get to that place, when our affections aren't completely chaotic and wandering, led astray by everything else in the world, that's when we find peace. And so we want our affections to be the same as his. And so when the disciples quote Psalm 69, 9, they're quoting David. And listen to what David says here. It's just an incredible passage of Scripture. It says, Uh, Psalm 69, 9 through 13, for zeal for your house has consumed me. Consumed. There is no half zeal. It either consumes or it's not zeal. Zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. What David is saying here is that when, when God is insulted, David is offended. When God's name is maligned, David is hurt. That's how you know you have zeal. And then look, he describes this and he says, when I wept, And humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. What David's saying is, I was sobbing, and I was fasting, and I was made fun of for it. When I made sackcloth my clothing, when David was mourning for his sins, for the sins of the nation of Israel, when he was mourning for them, I became a byword to them. 
They laughed and they mocked. He says, I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. That's what zeal looks like. Zeal isn't concerned about fitting in. Zeal isn't concerned about making people like you. It's not concerned about the number of friends or followers you have. Zeal consumes our affections for God. And so this was Jesus' zeal. And they see this. They see the same zeal in Jesus that David had. And they knew that the son of David was going to be the Messiah, right? And so they see these connections lining up, and they're like, this is the zeal And this is the zeal that God has had for us through all eternity. He had zeal for us before we even existed, before any of us existed. He was passionately jealous for us because he knew what we were going to do with our fruit. He knew we were going to be led astray. He knew that when he granted us this freedom, he knew what the consequences were. He knew the fall was going to happen. He's not, he didn't react. God isn't up there trying to work through plan B. This was in his ordained, predestined order in creation and sovereignty. And so he knew all this was going to happen. He goes, you know what my plan is? My plan is to run him down. So when we sing reckless love, that's zeal. It just doesn't rhyme very well. See, I make jokes. That's what that is. The whole song of reckless love is all about God's zeal for us. His jealous passion that runs you down even when you're running away. And I don't even know what the words say to it because I don't remember any lyrics to any song ever. But crushing walls or climbing over them or whatever, you know, like knocking down lies. Like, like this is what God does. Basically, he does everything. There's nothing you can do. There's no place you can go away from God's presence. You're not good enough to run away from him. You, you can't hide. You can't find the best hiding place ever. God will find you. And his zeal will consume you. He wants that. Look at what he says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10. He says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. And his recompense before him. Go spend some time on that word recompense. I, I had to Google it too, so it's okay. Go read it and see how it, it's beautiful. But look at verse 11. 
So here's this might, the might of God. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. How does he do this? How can he be strong and compassionate all at the same time? How can we look, right? Because when we hear the word zeal, we don't think good things. We think crazies. Don't we? They're zealous. They're, right? We don't even use that word very, very much. But this is our God. Zeal is a defining term of God's love for us, a love that is reflected in his strength and his compassion. Look what it says in 2 Peter 3.9. It says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, sometimes we're just too impatient, right? We're like, come on, God. Teach me the lesson. I'll learn it. Let's, let's get through this. He's patient. You see, a, another component of God's zeal is patience and long-suffering and endurance because what do we read throughout Scripture? We, like the Israelites, like everybody that's followed God, rebel. And then he comes to us, and we repent, and then we do it again. And then he comes to us, and then we do it again. This is our story, is it not? Not just my story, right? This is all of us. And we always laugh at, at the Israelites in the, in the desert. And um, like, how, can you, how, could you, how could you think like that when God is leading you by smoke and fire. They had a sign in front of them every single day. They woke up in the morning and, oh, there's, there's God in a cloud. But I like Egypt. <laughs> We're so fickle. And God is so patient with us. And his zeal endures. Why? Because he wants to rescue us. He knows the end state. He wants us to be with him because he wants us to know in this world joy, peace, and contentment. And in the next world, he wants us to know what it's like to actually exist where we are created to exist in his presence. And I can't even fathom what that's going to be like. But if this, if worship is just a, a little bit of a taste of it, which I think it is, I can't wait. And then look at Revelation 3.20. So here, here is Jesus. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He's like, I'm here.
So where's our zeal? This is the zeal of God. This is the zeal that Jesus displays. Because, I mean, honestly, when you read, I mean, you can just go to Google, and if you read about Jesus clearing the temple, it's like, okay, well, how do I describe his anger here? Righteous indignation. That's what we usually go to, right? Okay, I, I feel better. Jesus is okay. He can kind of do whatever he wants because he's God. So we'll give him a pass on the anger here. Zeal. Zeal. He's passionate for worship of God. He's passionate for the souls in that place. David was passionate. He was interceding, mourning, dressed in sackcloth, mourning for Israel, and they made fun of him. And he goes, you know what? I'm still going to fast. I'm still praying. Because he had zeal for their hearts. And so zeal is not an add-on to our Christian life. It defines it. Zeal should consume us. I get it. It's not a popular way to live. I don't know what it looks like, you guys. But I know what it's not. I know it's not diluted by being zealous about everything. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. And we just went through 1 Corinthians, so you kind of know a little bit of the, the context, the background of what Paul had been dealing with in the Corinthian church. And Paul says in verse 2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you. That word divine jealousy, zelu, zealous, the same word. Since I betrothed you to one husband, that's Jesus, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what Paul cared about. And we, we read 1 Corinthians, right? It wasn't a great church. He had a lot of hurdles he had to work through. Lots of sarcasm in that book from Paul. And then here is Paul. What is he concerned with? That their thoughts are being led astray. From a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul is zealous for He's zealous for their hearts just as Jesus was zealous for the hearts of those worshipers in the temple. In the same way. Are we zealous for other people's hearts to know God? Are we zealous for our own hearts? Forget about other people. Let's just start in our own place, in our own lives. Do we see our own waywardness? Do we see that we're zealous about politics and sports and pleasure more than we are about God? I mean, we could go down the list. Those are just the three that I'm like, I think those, these are probably the, probably the biggest ones. 
It's not that we got to live some, some perfectly pure life so that God would be pleased with us. That's not it. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. That's, it's, that's slavery, okay? That's legalistic slavery, and that's not what he's doing. This is, Paul does not sound like a, a slave owner here, does he? He's like, no, I want you to know who Christ is. I want you to capture your thoughts so you have a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. Why? Because he knows that that's the place where they're going to experience joy, peace, contentment. So do you? Do I? Do I know that in the presence of God, that's where exclusive place that I find joy, peace, and contentment? Or do I look for it in other places? Do you look for it in other places? And what about your friends? What about your family? What about the people that don't know Christ? Do they think that this is just some sort of like little game we play on Sunday mornings? That this is just, I, man, I, I listened to this interview um, and it was, it was political. See, it's just, it's horrible, right? And I'm listening to this interview and this person made the comment, anybody would give up their religion if they were in this circumstance. And I don't want to get into the circumstance, but, but I'm like, what do you think this is? But that's how the world sees this. They see this as like, oh, this is just like, the, you know, crossing the T, dotting the I, doing the thing. And you, it's good for you, cool. That's not what Scripture has. That's not what God has for us through the Bible, how he's revealed it to us. And so what does he say? He's like, no, this is where truth lies. This is the light shining in the darkness. And so we see the world scrambling and trying to find things to bring them joy. And it doesn't. And we watch them in their misery. We watch each other in our misery, don't we? Come on now, we, I mean, we're all wayward. This is why we have a fellowship of believers so that we can be encouraging to each other, so we can remind each other of what our hope is in Christ, not in these fickle things that come and go, that fade, that, that age, that break, get a new car, get, get a dent in it, right? Like it, it's inevitable and we know this to be true. We find a relationship, we're like, this is gonna be it. And God goes, no, that's not the relationship I care about. It's good, it's not bad. But don't be zealous about it. Don't be zealous about sports teams. I know. I know. I know. I get it. But how consuming is it? Zeal for your house will consume me. He doesn't say zeal for fill-in-the-blank sports team will consume me. He doesn't even say zeal for your family will consume me. These aren't bad things. They're just not God. Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 
Man, just, just circle that one right on your bathroom mirror. <laughs> Put that in front of us. That's what genuine love is. Is to hate the evil. To abhor it. And to love what's good. Love God. Hate evil. This is when we talk about that we want our affections to be like God's affection. We want to love the things he loves and hate the things he hates. You see, it's, when we look at the world, when we look at ourselves, when we fall into these pits, these diluted places of distracted lives, and it should hurt us because we go, I want you to know what God has for you. That's not where you should be placing your hope. And it seems like you're placing your hope there. Do you see how weak it is? That's love. You know, last night we talked about that and how, how hesitant we are to communicate to people these days. Because we don't want to offend and we don't want to, we, we're, always all, we're all walking on eggshells. But if our love is genuine, we have to communicate it. We have to tell them. We have to tell them in the same way we tell a drug addict, dude, that's not helpful. You're getting your fix. It feels good for a little bit, but stop. Jesus' actions here in this temple are offensive. Because he's zealous for God. And if you read that story and you go, wow, he kind of took it up a notch. Can we say that we want him to do the same in our hearts? Come clear my heart out. Come into my home and wreck havoc. Come into this place. Do what you will. That's zeal. That's what we all should be praying for. That's what we all should love. Let me pray.